Hi, I'm Ani Filipova, the creator and host of the Change is Possible podcast. With the help of our guests, we will uncover practical advice, actionable tips and inspirational stories that can help you make your career change possible. Let's tune in. Hi everyone and a very warm welcome to episode 23 of the Change is Possible podcast. My first guest for this year is someone I truly admire, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. She is a cultural anthropologist and an award-winning filmmaker who travels to the world's most remote regions to protect indigenous knowledge. She is an advocate for social, environmental and cultural justice. Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay is National Geographic's first Polynesian explorer and female fellow. Her story is incredibly interesting, from becoming Miss Hawaii and starting acting to finding her true calling in becoming an anthropologist. Let's tune in. Hi, Dr. Elizabeth. I'm so happy to see you and to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you have an amazing story and I just can't wait to, to tell it to our listeners. And I want to start from the very beginning. I want to ask you, what was this early personal and professional experiences that shaped you to become the woman you are today? Oh, thank you for that question. Well, I was born and raised in a very small town surrounded by a sugarcane plantation and lots of immigrants that came to Hawaii. And mostly from Southeast Asia. And so I just felt like I was a part of all of them, all of their heritage and traditions. I was raised by Hawaiian elders while my parents, who were both professors, worked. And their wisdom and humility really shaped my life. And early on, I was seven, and they told me that the world would someday be in trouble and it would take the wisdom from around the world to return the world to balance. So it began a career that I could hardly have imagined. Amazing. So you started in acting, right? This was your first kind of career. Actually, no, no, no. I, I only studied acting originally because I wanted to learn how to be a better writer. And I felt that if we could tell better stories, which acting helps you do, but if I could write a better story, I could actually become much more effective as a communicator. So I won a scholarship to study with Lee Strasberg while he was still alive. And he was so famous that I really didn't intend to become an actor. I simply wanted to study with him listen to the way actors were speaking and learn to be a writer of words that people would listen to. Amazing. And then you became an actor and it's really tough to become an actor, but you succeeded. So what helped you? What, what were these qualities? What do you think it helped you? Well, you know, acting, you're right. Acting's a very, very difficult profession. And I really sort of fell into it backwards because an agent saw me in this acting class and I fit the physical bill for a role that he 
eventually sent me to Warner Brothers to audition for, and, and I got the part the first time out. So, so I was really lucky. It wasn't always that easy. I mean, I had many, many experiences where I didn't get a part after that. But it's all to say that I realized that acting continued to help me hone my ability as a storyteller. And it also helped pay for my PhD program. So I was fortunate enough to work with very good directors and producers and other actors and in, and in the process also pay for my, my education. And then you left acting and chose a completely different field. It's, it's a little bit um, similar to that, you know, it's filming, but completely different to find, preserve and share the knowledge and tradition of indigenous population before they disappear. It's an amazing, amazing topic. And your documentary, Then There Were None, is amazing. It's, um, it's considered a Hawaiian historical classic, right? It is. How, how this transition happened? <laughs> well, you know, the through line in all of this, and I, I appreciate your asking because I appreciate your journey. The, the through line in all of my life has been the power of story and how people's narratives, whether it's our personal narrative or cultural narrative, really determines our destiny. So I knew early on that if storytelling was this important, then people's stories were equally valuable. And after, after I finished my education in anthropology, I really decided to take a turn from acting because as a woman, it would become I anticipated it would become harder and harder to stay in acting as a woman because there's so much ageism and so many of the films are really made for a very different audience. So it was a very practical decision on my part. But in addition to that, I was much more excited about listening to people's stories. And as I did, I realized that many of the elders of these cultures were passing away. And when they did, we may lose all of this valuable wisdom. And so I really started to go full bore and dive deeply into how I could preserve knowledge. I see. And this interest um, to their stories, did they develop uh, in your childhood? Did you always have it in you and then it was the time to develop it? Or you suddenly developed interest? No, it's, it's a great question. It was always in me because I was raised by elders in Hawaii and we would often sit and they would tell us their stories. And then I watched them pass away and I was still quite young. And as I got older and started to do more travel and, and listen to the wisdom of other elders in different parts of the world, I wished for being able to have preserved my own cultural wisdom and knowledge of, of the elders who helped raise me. And I realized that that's something you can never get back. So part of my mission and commitment is to support other people in different parts of the world to preserve the, the wisdom and knowledge in their communities and their families. 
My next question is a bit sensitive, but I really want to know how you felt because you you were Miss Hawaii, right? And then you were famous in, in films. How easy it was to be accepted as scientist? It's such a great question um, because I never thought of anthropology as a science. I, in, in fact, growing up, I didn't know what anthropology was. And I think my own definition, my own personal definition of it is to simply bear witness to the world, suspending our own prejudices and judgments. So in that way, anyone who is passionate about the world is an anthropologist. I later learned that to earn a degree in anthropology, it was a science that I really needed to understand. So even that I backed into, never thinking that I was becoming a scientist, but I knew that I loved anthropology. And I knew that that was a very important piece of what I needed to do in order to do my work. So in answer to your question, people often are a bit surprised about the more external journey that I've, I've made, you know, as, as an actor, as, as a former Miss Hawaii. And yet from the inside, which is always so fascinating about perception, from the inside, it made perfect sense because Miss Hawaii offered a scholarship that helped me pay for my education. And my parents, who were both professors, my father got very sick, and I knew that they were under a great deal of stress with having to put me through school. So I stepped out of college in order to help my family. And a friend of mine, interestingly, said to me as I was deliberating about leaving school, she said, there's a scholarship pageant. You probably won't win, but if you can just place as a runner-up, you can earn some scholarship to keep yourself in school. And it made perfect sense to me. So I went to my parents and I said, what do you think of this idea? And they said, absolutely not. We do not want our daughter going into a beauty pageant. And I said, no, 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 it's a scholarship pageant. And I, I really don't stand a chance of winning, but if I can just place as a runner up. So I explained all of this to them and very hesitantly they agreed. And we didn't even have money for my evening gown, you know, it was homemade and, and it was a funny story, but it's all to say that if people just see that I was a Miss Hawaii and now I'm an anthropologist and a scientist, they don't know the backstory that took me to an education. Nobody knows them. And that's, that's why it's so great you sharing it with, with the world on, on social media and through your talks, etc. because then only they, they can discover the person behind, right? Otherwise they see a facade and they make assumptions, but your true self comes out in your writing, as you said. Can you go a little bit into, into that change from the film set? How did you adjust or was there even an adjustment? It's interesting to understand these first steps. Well, thank you. And because you have spent so much time in Asia, the very last film that I did with, was with Chow Yun-Fat and, uh, and Mark Wahlberg. And I remember, because this is the transition, 
I remember that my hotel room, because we were filming in Canada, was filled with all of my school books. And the director would always say, Elizabeth, you have to make a choice. You can either be an actor and you need to show up prepared on the set, or you can be a student, but you cannot be both. And I was so close to finishing the film and also so close to finishing my PhD that I thought, I can do both and I will prove them wrong. So I worked very hard on that last film that I did, knowing that it would be my final film. And then once I graduated with my doctorate, I just took off in wanting to be with cultures and listen. And I never looked back. I, I, I didn't even see the film. And, and Cho Yun Fat had another film that he was going into and wanted me to work on that. It was Anna and the King, which was about the King of Siam with Jodie Foster. And I said to him, thank you so much, because he wanted me to play one of his wives. And, and I knew the director and I said, you know, I would really love to consider it, but the work that I feel called to is so much more important to me. And the King had many wives, so <laughs> I just, you know, I made light of it. But I really, I, I am grateful to the people that I worked with in acting especially with Yun Fat, because he was so generous and kind to people and there was so much humanity in him that I thought this is a perfect, perfect time for me to step out of acting. And so the transition wasn't that hard. It's a fascinating story. I just can't believe that's possible, but there you are. Change is possible. So you serve on um, different international boards, but there's some boards that I can't even start to imagine, like the, the Tibet Fund for His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. What is to serve on these boards? And, and what are some of the learnings you had from that? It must be, it must be something out of this world. It is. And, you know, I, I was humbled to be invited to serve on, on the board uh, because what I learned most importantly one, I really respect and admire the Dalai Lama. Two, his compassion for the world, not simply for his people who are really struggling. So our focus was on helping Tibetan refugees. And I learned so much in the process about how much they've been through. It increased my awareness and also helped grow my humanity and commitment to serving throughout the world. So that was a great teaching for me with the Tibet Fund. And then I've worked with ambassadors from the United Nations on climate refugees because in my travels, I was face to face with so many cultures that are struggling as a result of climate change. And so again, I learned and learned about the situations throughout the world, but also learned to heighten my compassion and my commitment to serve. Can you give us a little bit of more details of what is to work for United Nations and um, how do you help environmental refugees? So what is it? Because I really don't know, and I guess that most of the listeners would not know too. 
I'd be happy to. Uh, and that was serendipitous, really, because I had no connections to the United Nations. I just happened to do some research on climate refugees because I saw what was happening in the Pacific. And I came across a paper that had been written by one of the ambassadors in Palau. And I reached out to him and said, if there's any help that I can give you, I have over 25,000 images and 80 hours of video that we have shot in Micronesia in a very remote island. And if, if there's any part of this that we can help fortify your arguments at the United Nations, um, please let me know. And he did. He reached out immediately and I flew to New York. We met and he said, we need your help to tell these stories and, and serve with other United Nations ambassadors. And so I did. Great. And maybe related to that, you have created a um, number of scholarships for children in India and in the Pacific. So what was the driving factors be behind doing that? And can you share any success stories of people who really made it because of these scholarships? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm happy to speak about it because it's one of the things that I care so much about. The driving force for these scholarships was having been raised um, very simply and not having money. And I knew that education was one of the doorways to allow people a greater capacity to realize their potential. And because I've been fortunate in this stage in my life, I thought, what can I do to give back, but in a very meaningful way. So I started in Hawaii first because I knew the community well, and I knew that I could make a difference in certain parts of our community that were more vulnerable. So I started with, with scholarships for children in middle school and high school in helping them with their education and with scholarships. And I also gave some scholarships to writing programs in Hawaii so that children would have the mentorship, you know, hands-on mentoring to become more proficient and more confident in telling their own stories, because I knew that where cultures have been colonized or marginalized, their voices are, are more frequently suppressed. And so in order to, to really make a difference in the world, we have to ensure that we elevate and amplify voices that are often not heard. So my next question is, um, can you share with us what, is the, what was the most challenging period in your life and how do you overcome it? Very good question. And when I was 50, I had just turned 50, my husband passed away of cancer the following month. So I was in my 50th year. And for anyone who's ever experienced loss of this kind, it can be so devastating that it, it actually 
breaks us open in, in many ways. And for me, my heart was shattered in a thousand pieces. And I really didn't know how to put myself back together again after that. I spent many months working with a therapist and grieving deeply, not running from the grief, not trying to um, find ways of suppressing the grief, but really going into a tunnel to face it. And I think that's really important. I had commitments a few months out. One commitment I remember was to speak at Oxford University in a hall. It was a conference for women and it was being held in a hall at Oxford where women were not allowed. And I was at the very end of the conference as a speaker and the women were incredibly bright and incredibly inspiring. And I'd prepared a talk long before my husband passed away because I knew this was coming. And when I got to Oxford, because of my grief, I thought, how do I best serve this audience? And I knew that the talk I, I had prepared would not do that. So I ripped it up the morning I was speaking, which is a very brave thing to do. And I went in and I spoke from my heart. And I don't really remember what I said. But I knew that if I trusted what was in me to speak authentically and to empower women, because that was, that was the purpose of my, my choosing to be there, that it would be enough. And it was, it was one of the most reorienting experiences I've ever had, was to trust my voice. It's not that we don't need to be prepared. I just feel that when we do prepare, even to be on your podcast, my goal and my, my prayer is to serve your audience. So I'm here for no other reason but to serve them and to support you. When we come to everything we do with that intention, something happens and shifts what we, how we speak and what we share. The world, we've had enough we prize the mind oftentimes over the heart, but I feel that it takes both reason and logic and our heart and human consideration, our humanity, to really make our messages powerful. Amazing, amazing message. Thank you so much for saying this. And um, you are involved in so many things. You are... I mean, we spoke about four or five things already. So how do, you, how do you live this life and what are these qualities? What are the top three qualities that helped you through your life to go through all the changes and to succeed? If somebody, if somebody is to listen to this podcast, what are the three key takeaways they should go away with? Your questions are so good. So good. Thank you. First for me is compassion and compassion in a deep and meaningful way. In Hawaii, we call it aloha, and it's often a word that's commodified. But what it means is to love others so much that your heart breaks open to look into the eyes of another because what you are looking at is divine. 
and to really bow deeply to that. The second for me is humility, to know that I am always a student and everyone whose path I cross, I can learn something from. And the third is a commitment to serve the world, is to complete and utter generosity so that when I leave this life, there is nothing left for me to do but to have given it all away. Thank you so much. And can you tell us just before we finish, what are you doing at the moment? What are your projects? And how can listeners find you, read about you, read your stories, watch your movies? Documentaries, sorry, I'm correcting. Documentaries. <laughs> Documentary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm working on a project right now, which is very, very exciting to me, called Earth One. We're at the very beginning of it. So I haven't talked much about it, but it will be the most important work I ever do in my lifetime. And I'm very excited about it. I happen to meet all of my partners, interestingly enough, on LinkedIn. The top leading technologists in the world are building out a platform where we will be able to protect all of the world's wisdom and knowledge from cultures around the world. So this is very exciting. And in terms of people finding me, LinkedIn really is the platform that I have chosen I, I'm really very new to LinkedIn. I've only become active on it in less than a year. But I found that for anyone who's interested in being part of a vibrant community, LinkedIn really is a platform for that. And I'd be happy to support people that come and join us to really grow and cultivate a global community. And um, and then I have a, a website, which is elizabethlindsay.com. But they can always find me on LinkedIn because I'm there almost on a daily basis. Great. I remember how we met. We actually met on this audio platform. What was the name of it? I don't know whether it still exists. Clubhouse. And then, and then we connected on LinkedIn. This is how it happened. <laughs> it, it is. This is exactly what happened. And I have been so fascinated by the journey that you have made. And I love your content. It's incredibly inspiring to let people know to be brave and to make the journey and to be willing to go through transitions and really come out so vibrantly. So thank you. Thank you so much again for being my guest. And it was a great pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Elizabeth. I wish you all the best. Thank you, Ani. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Please remember to review, rate and subscribe when you have a chance. You can do that on your favorite podcast platform or go to our site, changeispossible.site. Thank you once again and have a great day.